the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated briefly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe again that the American people are, as a whole, capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes. Welcome to Serve to Lead. I'm your host, James Strzok. As we get started, may I ask a favor? Please help us reach a growing audience by giving us a high rating on iTunes. With us today is a widely respected thought leader in American energy and environmental policy, Daniel Esty. Dan Esty is a professor at Yale University teaching in law, environment, and management. He has extensive experience in the public sector, including serving at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and as head of the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. These high-flying experiences are kept down to earth by his far-reaching consulting with business and NGOs around the world. Dan's also a prolific writer who's just released an important new book, A Better Planet, 40 Big Ideas for a Sustainable Future. Dan Esty, it's a delight to welcome you today. Please tell, us a bit of, please tell us a bit about your latest book, why you wrote it, and why it matters now. So this book, as you uh, hinted at, um, is uh, designed to sort of think about pathways to a sustainable future. And it comes out of a project at Yale launched by a new dean, a woman named Indy Burke, who arrived a couple of years ago from the University of Wyoming. And her view, and I think there were a lot of us that agreed with it, was that as a school of forestry and environmental studies, we had a lot to say about the substance of what's required to get to a sustainable future, and that there would be real interest uh, across the world, across the country, and in many places uh, in this sort of what does the agenda look like uh, from an air point of view, a water point of view, a waste point of view, and really wanted to get, uh, she wanted us to get into the details of the of the path, of the substance. And I think it was particularly uh, launched with an eye towards getting beyond the political debates that seem so broken down in our current moment. And so this is a, a book pulled together with uh, 40 different uh, essays from authors uh, all across the country and some around the world from a range of perspectives, a range of disciplines, from Republicans as well as Democrats. And all of them have put forward their best thinking about what's required, required to get us to uh, a sustainable future, in many cases building on a lifetime of work, and in every case offering up provocative kind of big thoughts about what, uh, what sustainability means in practice uh, across the range of places that we're going to have to make change to move from where we are as a society today with a, an energy system that's got lots of pollution issues, including the buildup of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, lots of waste, including the kind of issue of the year around plastics, um, to a world where we've got uh, more in the way of what some people describe as a circular economy and more closed loops. And of course, we've got a, a, an essay on that very topic from a colleague of mine, Marion Chertow, um, but 39 other essays that address other aspects of the sustainability challenge broadly defined. Well, Dan, let's go a bit into the terrific issue you raise about today's politics. Environmental politics in many people's eyes are broken and have been for a while. I mean, you and I were involved as young people in the passage of the last great environmental federal statute, the Clean Air Act of 1990, that's more than a generation ago at this point. Is bipartisanship realistic? Uh, where do you see this going? 
Well, Jim, you and I did uh, have a special moment to be uh, working at the Environmental Protection Agency, working in the political fields of Washington, where we were able to, across party lines, get Republicans and Democrats to come together and do something transformative with regard to air pollution. And I like to quiz my students, uh, none of whom were even uh, uh, paying attention at that point that we were working on this in the early 19, uh, you know, eight, late 1980s, early 90s. Um, they have no idea about what it took and, and how it might have been possible to bring people together. So I like to quiz them on what they think the final vote in the U.S. Senate might have been on that Clean Air Act of 1990. And of course, I can separate the A students from the B students. The A students say, well, it must have been 60-40, because we know you have to get over the, the cloture hurdle and, uh, and the filibuster. The B students say, well, maybe it was 51-49 or 52-48. Uh, the actual answer, as you may remember, was 89-11. to 11. So there really was a moment there where people were working together, where this issue of an environmental future was seen as not a Republican or a Democratic issue, and there weren't Republican agendas and Democrat agendas that didn't overlap. There was a common sense that this was a, uh, an important issue across party lines for all Americans, and it allowed us to bring people together to kind of work out compromises and to do big things. And one of the hopes for this book, this idea of a better planet with the pathways to a sustainable future, is a hope of bringing people back to a common ground agenda and saying that there can be ways forward, particularly with new technologies, new frameworks, new concepts that might rally people once again to seeing this issue as a, a point of convergence and not uh, as it has been used in so many recent elections as a wedge issue. Well, let's talk for a moment about something dear to your heart and dear to the nation's heart at this point, climate politics and climate change or climate disruption or a climate crisis. Now that people are focused on it, there's increasing attention to nuclear power as whether or not that's a necessary part of any realistic rapid solution or whether it can be bypassed for new technologies. Connecticut is known for relying heavily on nuclear power. What lessons are there from the Connecticut experience and what's your view on this important question? I think nuclear power represents a fairly significant part of the clean energy that we have in America today and in that regard is almost certainly going to be needed as a bridge to a truly clean and renewable energy supply of the future. Uh, if we were to get rid of our nuclear plants right now, it would put a big hole in the clean energy production that we have available to us today. So I think uh, nuclear power remains critical at the current moment. Um, I'm not even convinced that uh, we won't want to have some new plants built as we kind of move towards uh, alternative energy over a 20 or 30 year time frame. So I'm a believer that as part of a package of energy solutions, nuclear has a place. Having said that, there remain significant public challenges with getting a public comfortable with nuclear, significant issues around waste disposal. Uh, anytime you have a waste that has to be managed very carefully for 10,000 years, you've got some particular challenges. And I think the, the real hindrance right now or the real obstacle to nuclear playing more of a role is uh, cost overruns at all of the recent plants that have been run. So the, the lesson from Connecticut, where we do get half of our power from nuclear plants, uh, is that we're the beneficiaries uh, of an investment made decades ago that we've continued to invest in to keep it up to date. And uh, in doing so, we have a, a big block of clean energy available to us. But I think we're going to need to go broader than that. I believe there's going to be opportunities for more hydropower, 
And uh, that, I would argue, can come uh, not just from within each state, but perhaps in more collaboration with Canada that has vast hydropower resources. And the real goal, uh, you know, the real goal in my mind is not to guess what the right clean energy choice for the future is going to be, but rather to run a competition. Uh, Solar power, wind power, and perhaps more exotic things, wave power, tidal power, uh, geothermal power, fuel cells. I would put all of these into a kind of competitive race and uh, put together proposals that get these uh, different power sources into the mix, pilot projects going in cases where it's a new technology, and then let's make a decision out 10 or 15 years from now about which of these options really represents the best path to a clean and renewable energy future. A great part of your wise thinking there, I think, is that you are looking ahead to the future, and in doing so, you express the gratitude we have to prior generations. And as you're aware, the year 2020 is the 50th anniversary of the starting of US EPA. And from now to 1970 is the same as from 1970 to 1920. So we have quite a base here to think about. What lessons should be front and center this year, Dan Esty? What kind of institutional arrangements do you think ought to be reconsidered? And what would a new EPA look like were it to begin today? What a a great way to frame this opportunity to reflect uh, in the year 2020 on what many of us would view as the 50 years of the modern environmental law and policy process. Uh, It's amazing to think that two generations have gone by. And I think the, you know, lesson one is to say we have made a great deal of progress. Our air is cleaner. Our water is safer. uh, We've managed chemicals in a much more careful way. We're more attentive to waste. Uh, We've begun to, but only begun to address climate change. And I guess that's the second lesson, that where the uh, effort has been made and where people have worked together, we've made significant progress. Where issues have been broken down, as I think climate change has over the better part of the last two decades, uh, significant issues remain uh, out there, and we have not made the kind of progress society needs to make. And I guess the third lesson I would draw, and looking back from 1970 to the 50 years prior, um, it's very hard to guess uh, at a moment in time where innovation is going to come from, where new thinking, creativity, and breakthroughs will emerge. So I'm a big believer, in, and this is my core lesson uh, of my own essay in this Better Planet book, is that we should do more to restructure our policy process, and frankly, our EPA in particular, to promote innovation. So we need, I think, uh, an agency that's less focused on telling business specifically which, and this is the term of art, best available technology they have to deploy, and really focus more on setting a, a goal, setting a standard, and then inviting industry to be the ones that bring us solutions. And uh, so create incentives for innovation, structure our law and policy to drive fresh thinking and innovation, and be open to answers that might not have been the ones we anticipated. Well, let's look ahead beyond the turbulence of 2020 and the presidential and national elections to 2025, after the next election. In your mind's eye, what would you like a president to say on January 20th, 2025, about the environment? So I think um, we're almost certainly going to be at 2025 facing significant challenges, but as you've suggested, with a significant uh, past that involves real progress across a range of issues. And I think what we could say at 2025, looking back then across just over 50 years uh, of our modern environmental era, that we 
chose uh, to set up in the 1970s a certain approach to environmental protection that those of us in the uh, world of environmental policy sometimes call command and control regulation, where a lot of the work goes, uh, you know, goes to the government to figure out what the problems are, uh, what the solutions might be. Uh, and in the case of the EPA, a lot of work industry by industry figuring out what the technology response should look like and then dictating in very specific ways uh, what companies need to do. And I'd rather break that process open, encourage innovation, and I think the best way to do that would be to shift from this command and control regulatory model to one that focuses on price signals. Make people pay for the harm they cause and have that be the incentive that drives them to think about how to do their business differently, how to reduce their emissions, uh, and frankly, and this is where the real breakthroughs come, how to solve not only their own environmental challenges, but those of their customers. One major change from 1970 that's very positive, as you're reflecting, is that environmental stewardship is now universally accepted as a primary ideal and responsibility in American public and private life. That said, are there any widely held public sentiments or assumptions on the environment that hold us back that you think we ought to really focus on changing or refining to get to the next level? Well, I think the, the biggest challenge, and um, you know, I saw this with particular sharpness of focus as the commissioner of Connecticut's Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, is how resistant people are to change. Uh, even when the status quo is plainly not working or not working as well as it could. So I think, uh, frankly, that inertia, the, the kind of getting stuck in the, in the rut we're in, is the biggest challenge. And people often say to me, well, your you know, ideas about shifting to a, a policy approach that's more focused on having people pay for the harm they cause, more around price signals, all sounds great, but how do we get there from here? as if we are stuck with, inevitably stuck with, the current regulatory framework. And I just don't think that's right. I think there would have to be transition strategies developed. I think, in fact, one of the critical elements of environmental policy that's gotten too little attention is how we transition from a certain way of doing things that we might be with now to a different way in the future that would be environmentally better. So I think um, pushing for and overcoming uh, the resistance to change and recognizing that across almost every institution in society, the key to progress has been innovation, doing things in new and different and better ways. Um, that represents the kind of core challenge for the next decade. Dan Estia, a key focus of serve to lead is 21st century leadership, including 21st century environmental leadership. You're creating a new generation of environmental leaders at Yale through your teaching. What do you see as new and important and distinct about 21st century environmental leadership, say compared to the mid 20th century models that you referred to a little already that underlay the creation of US EPA? Well, you uh, have hinted, Jim, at this a little bit already, and that is, I think, um, across American society, and particularly in American business, uh, the leadership world recognizes that there is a, a sustainability imperative. We really have to, as a society, uh, get our arms around some of these environmental challenges, and it's not optional. The, the risk is that we will end up with water systems that are not delivering the, either the quantity or the quality of water we need, air in cities 
it's unbreathable and frankly a, a climate change risk that could be uh, insurmountable from a, a planet-wide perspective. And I do think, and this is a, a very positive thing, that the folks I'm dealing with, this next generation of leadership as you're describing them, the 20-somethings that are in graduate school now, take that challenge seriously. There's very little doubt, again, across political lines, Republicans as well as Democrats, that we need to think about new strategies for climate change and perhaps more broadly for our environmental agenda. And I think there is also a growing recognition that it can't be all left to the government. Uh, the 21st century leader in a business has got to be up to speed on these environmental challenges and not just up to speed, but recognize that businesses of all kinds, big business, small business across many industries are going to be asked by a public that wants progress to step up and deliver solutions. So I think you've got a world of young business leaders in particular, but societal leaders more broadly, that are committed to an agenda of change. And frankly, a world of, of young leaders who see opportunity in this pathway to change. The idea that we're gonna deliver over the next 20 or 30 years an entirely different energy foundation for our economy uh, could be seen as scary. But to these young leaders, it's seen as uh, exciting as, and as an opportunity. And as uh, one of the folks that I have in my corporate sustainability class reminded me just last week, uh, this is a $6 trillion per year business uh, delivery of energy. And that's a lot of market opportunity for those that can bring uh, innovative perspectives to bear and new products and services into that marketplace. Well said. Uh, Dan, one of the many things you do is you teach law and help build lawyers. What is the changing role of lawyers as you look at the rising generation compared to the ones that you and I were part of? Well, I think the lawyers uh, in society today have begun to see themselves as needing to have uh, a broader set of responsibilities and roles. They can't simply be drafting contracts or bringing lawsuits. Uh, the very best lawyers see themselves now as counselors, uh, advising the businesses they work with, advising other institutions in society, and trying to really help these uh, other entities uh, undertake the change that's required. And I think the very best of lawyers are seeing themselves not as the old lawyer might have, as a guardian of tradition, as a holding to uh, uh, the past in some regards, but rather as really working with their clients to uh, facilitate uh, the change that's going to be required and to think about it in ways that are constructive and to really push people to uh, absorb not only what the marketplace is requiring, but what society is asking for. Let's talk a minute about your own leadership journey. What key lessons have you learned that you would impart to 20-year-olds today, or perhaps you would tell your own 20-year-old self if you could? Well, I feel very lucky to have um, worked uh, under some outstanding leaders in uh, in government in particular, but in my academic life, and, and I've seen in action a number of business leaders who I have great respect for. And I guess I would offer just a couple of things um, in that uh, kind of journey over now 30 plus years of trying to understand what leadership looks like. And I think the, the first lesson I've learned is that you have to have a vision. You have to have uh, clarity of where you're trying to get to and be able to spell it out to the team you're working with. You need to be able to articulate why you want your organization to go with you towards a certain destination. So I think a clear vision turns out to be uh, extremely important. And the second thing that I think is often under attended to is a strategy for execution. 
And I think sometimes uh, in business or in government, people think if they're clear on where they're trying to get to, if they've got a clear uh, kind of goal, uh, somehow the strategy will follow. But that's not the case. Strategy has to be developed with care, with attention to uh, both what the, the opportunities are to make change happen and to what the obstacles will be. And then I think very much there is a, a tendency, even if a good strategy has been developed, to uh, pay too little attention to execution. And I think a great number of efforts in business to deliver a, a winning product or service to the market or in government to deliver a new policy approach uh, fall down in practice, fall down uh, in implementation, so that it really does require a, a core vision to start with, a carefully developed strategy, and then delivery on the ground with an implementation plan that is uh, well thought through and delivered on, and frankly has checkpoints to make sure that the progress is being achieved, and if there are new issues that emerge, that there's been uh, some effort then to rethink the plan and modify it uh, with on-the-ground information that helps you redo your action agenda and your implementation so as to stay consistent with what's required for success. With your 30-plus years of experience, what key matters on environment energy have you changed your mind on? That is uh, an incredibly interesting question, uh, and it does reflect uh, another virtue, by the way, of a good leader, which is not to be dog dogmatic, to always be looking for new information and to open up uh, to the possibility that you might have had something wrong and need to think about it again. And I would pick two um, the, you know, sort of issues where I thought I had the right answer, and uh, I now believe in a quite different answer. And I would say this is reflected in what has happened in climate change in recent years. Um, in 1992, as you indicated, I uh, was uh, in government. I was at the EPA at the time and was one of the negotiators of that 1992 Framework Convention on Climate Change. And our approach at that moment, reflecting the spirit of the 20th century environmental kind of broad thinking, was that we needed a top-down solution. Uh, we needed a government, uh, in this case, governments across the world, to work together to set targets and timetables, and then it would be up to national governments to uh, uh, push that into their societies and make change happen. And I think that top-down strategy, that uh, you know, national government-led effort, has proven in many places, including the United States, not to work very well. And the slow progress on climate change uh, over 30 years uh, is in part a function of that uh, excessive emphasis on, uh, on top-down. I think what we've learned now is that uh, in many cases, and it's true in the United States, uh, the top leaders, the president here, prime ministers in other places, don't actually have their hands on the controls of many of the things that need to move to really be uh, serious about climate change. Uh, in many circumstances, mayors or governors or business leaders are better positioned to make that change happen. So I, in uh, recent years, and, and frankly leading up to the 2015 Paris Climate Change Agreement, pushed very hard to supplement uh, a kind of a top-down vision of where we go with a much greater focus on uh, bottom-up action and leadership being spread uh, much wider across society, recognizing the important role of, uh, of decentralized leadership. Uh, and in America, that meaning governors, mayors, uh, and CEOs, uh, as well as other community leaders, alongside whatever is coming out of Washington. You know, to that point, one of the really interesting things that appears to be happening is that while various political groups are divided on these issues, and you'll see people on the right associated with the Brexit or the Yellow Jackets or populist groups in America, 
But then you also have on the left people at the moment looking to particularly local governments do more and more to work around national governments. But the big thing they share is they're all heading toward decentralization or what the academics might call subsidiarity. How can we bring that together? I think you've identified one of the um, critical points of learning uh, in the environmental arena over the last number of decades, and that is that we would do better to have a strategy of subsidiarity, of saying to uh, governments, we should act on this at the most decentralized scale that can provide an effective policy response. And uh, if the problem is city scale, you know, how to manage a park, uh, leave it to the mayor uh, and a city council. If the problem is a bit broader, uh, you know, how do you deal with a polluted river that runs across a state, then maybe it's up to the governor. Um, and only on some small number of issues that are truly national in scope do you have to presume that the national environmental authorities are the best ones to take up uh, a problem. So I'm a big believer that we do need uh, a mix of levels of government. We need some activities at the federal level, some at the state level some at the city scale, and frankly, some things can almost be left to the household scale. But then at the same moment, we have to recognize there are a small number of problems, but climate change is among them, that require global scale cooperation for a successful response. When EPA was started in 1970, many of the top officials in government had had their experiences greatly shaped by World War II and by centralization as a way to get many, many things done in the early 20th century, and then many of the young people at that time were affected by the fact that government was not trusted in the Vietnam type, of, type era, and there was a lot of efforts to be sure government was not taken over, and this led to a lot of the prescription that you've referred to in these laws. Is it fair to say that what you're saying here, what you're identifying about decentralization implies a very different role for national governments, and if so, how do we get there? Oh, I think it is. Um, and every era is uh, built on the foundations provided by the one before. And I think your diagnosis of uh, how we got off uh, in the 1970s in this direction of national government-led centralized policy, uniform laws, very much was a function of that to, uh, of that response to first the Great Depression, second World War II, and the need to mobilize society broadly and to do so at scale. And I think one of the things that we now have available to us is a much greater capacity to step back and say, well, not everything needs to be done at a central basis. And frankly, one of the other reasons that we did uh, environmental protection, I think, uh, in that era, first era of the 1970s into the 1980s in a central fashion with the national government leading the charge, was we didn't have much base of environmental knowledge to build on. We have a whole lot more now. We also lacked the ability to manage issues at a more disaggregated and frankly non-uniform way. And yet we've learned that there are a lot of problems that uh, localized solutions uh, that are more attentive to local circumstances, local priorities, uh, can be undertaken. We don't need, for example, a national landfill liner law recognizing that uh, rainy Connecticut and not so rainy Arizona might have different circumstances that permit slightly different rules. Uh, it would be a shame if there were no rules on, uh, on waste management in one of those states, but that they have to have exactly the same doesn't seem logical to me anymore. So I do think we're uh, learning that we can do things in a more careful way. We've got a big base of knowledge to build on. And frankly, we've got information technologies that allow us to manage these problems in a much more granular, refined, cost-effective, and environmentally effective way. 
Dan, let's talk about your personal experience a little bit further. What books or other creative works have been particularly influential on your thinking and that you might recommend to others? Well, you know, I try to read broadly, um, and so I've got some ideas that uh, have emerged from the environmental uh, arena. Uh, I very much liked in recent years the work of my colleague Bill Nordhaus, who just won the Nobel Prize, and a book he wrote called The Climate Casino. And I think it reflects um, this need to be more careful in the trade-offs, uh, understand the issues, underpin policy with good analysis, good science, good data. So I, I very much like his work. Uh, and then more broadly, I think some of the, the sort of learning that I've gotten uh, has been around the importance of innovation. Uh, and it happens that uh, one of the great leaders of, uh, of the world of innovation uh, has died in, in recent moments, uh, Clayton Christensen, who was a professor at Harvard Business School. And he reminded, uh, I think, the business world and then all of us that if you don't innovate, you end up eventually losing. Uh, and Clayton Christensen was writing, and you know I've read his work alongside Michael Porter, his colleague at Harvard Business School, who talked a lot about innovation and the importance of that to competitiveness. But both of them, I think, are part of a broader world of scholars and academics, uh, researchers and writers, who I think offered up one of the most profound conclusions to come out of social science in the last 50 years. And that is that the key to a healthy institution, whether it's a company or a government or a community organization, is the ability to change, the ability to innovate. And I think that really is a profound finding that uh, uh, organizations must evolve and continue to kind of remake themselves in order to succeed and to continue to thrive over time. That also keeps Schumpeter relevant, doesn't it? It does. And so some of the thinking goes back even beyond the, the scholarship of the last couple of decades. And, uh, you know, creative destruction um, is, I think, an important element uh, of any healthy organization. You've got you can't assume that your answer to the problem tomorrow is the same as it was yesterday and certainly not the same as it might have been 30 or 40 years ago. What do you do to disrupt yourself, Dan? Well, I try to get outside. I feel like I have a, a good excuse as someone who's working in the environmental arena to go observe nature. So I try to hike and bike and camp and fish and, uh, and really take time to uh, you know, benefit from the world of nature that we have, in fact, in the United States, done so much to protect. And it is always a joy to get to a, a new park, a new place, and to see part of a country uh, that is so rich in its diversity of geography and of beauty. And uh, so I find that the, the best way to disconnect and to refresh and get ready to go back into the uh, battle to move things forward. In the mid-20th century, Claire Booth Luce famously instructed John Kennedy that everyone, even presidents, are ultimately encapsulated merely in a single sentence. What would you like your one sentence to be? Well, I think actually the there's an amusing uh, reality to some of the things that are beyond our control. So on my Wikipedia page, which of course I never uh, had any uh, hand in writing, someone said that uh, Dan Esty is a radical centrist. And uh, I kind of have embraced that. I, I believe in the radical part because I'm very much focused on bringing about transformative change in society, transformation towards a sustainable future founded on a, a new 
uh, energy uh, that is going to be renewable and clean. But centrist in that I am a believer that almost always successful and enduring change comes not from one uh, side of the political spectrum or the other, but from people working across party lines, across ideological lines, to find common ground and to work together in a way that allows a, a change to be seen as beneficial to a broad swath of society. So I, I hope I'm seen as someone who delivered on that radical centrist uh, view of how one moves the world forward and how one advances the sustainability agenda in particular. Dan Esty, how can listeners best follow and connect with you on social media? Well, I um, am very happy to have people follow the work of my Center for Environmental Law and Policy at Yale. And we've got a website and uh, opportunities there to plug into our podcasts. And so I'm very eager to have people uh, pick that agenda up. I also do uh, publish and have got a new book out that we've just started talking about, this Better Planet book. And that is available uh, in bookstores or on Amazon. It also has a... uh, a uh, social media component to it and we invite people to kind of provide feedback for us. Well, Dan Esty, thank you so much. You're a font of wisdom and inspiration. I hope we can have you back again in the future. My pleasure. So glad to be with you.